And I want to comfort you this morning with the words of Isaiah and say, God is coming for you. And he's coming to hold you and to bless you and to keep you. He is coming for you. God's promise is that he's coming and it stands. The grass may die, the flower may wither away, you may turn to dust, but the word of God will last forever. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. It was this same Sunday, I don't know if it was on the 7th, but the first Sunday of the year, in 2022, that we began to study the, the book of Isaiah. So it's two years ago this Sunday, we began to study the book of Isaiah. And some of you may remember this, probably most of you won't, but uh, Isaiah breaks into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 39, and the second part is 40 to 66. And the first part is primarily about God's judgment. And the last part is about God's salvation. So it's often called the book, the book of Isaiah is often called the book of judgment and the book of salvation. Liberal scholars who deny the inspiration of the Bible, they believe that the book of Isaiah was written by at least two different men, some divided into three parts, three different men. And their contention is that the first part of Isaiah, 1 through 39, is so different than the second part that they could not have been written by the same man and they could not have been written um, at the same time. I'll only say that for those of us who are part of our family, our authority is the Word of God. Our authority is Jesus. And Jesus quotes both from the first part of Isaiah and the last part of Isaiah. And he says, the prophet Isaiah says. So if Jesus thought all of the book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah, hey, I'm going to go with him. You're welcome to go with the progressives and the liberals, but uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with Jesus on that. We worked our way through the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah in, uh, in our first journey, and we stopped at that point. We did some other things. We're going to come back and we're going to finish the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. Isaiah is widely regarded as uh, the most important or the greatest prophet in Israel's history. His name means Yahweh is salvation. And uh, he lived in Jerusalem and he prophesied during the reign, or he prophesied to the countries of Israel and Judah when they were divided into other nations. Jewish tradition was, if you'll remember this, that uh, Isaiah was most likely a cousin to King Uzziah. And so therefore he had royal blood, which gave him access to all the kings uh, of Judah and in Jerusalem. Uh, the biblical account in chapter 1, verse 1, says that he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And that time covered uh, is from the end of King Uzziah's reign, Isaiah 6.1, uh, to the Assyrian king Zennacherib's siege on Jerusalem. It was a ministry that lasted about 40, 40 years at the last half of the 8th century B.C., that means that Isaiah wrote about 3,200 years ago. So what we're reading was written by Isaiah from over 3,000 years ago. And yet his 
inspired writings continue to, they were preserved in the Bible, and they continue, I believe, to be relevant for us who follow Jesus. And there's definitely relevant truth about God in these verses for us. And so I'm hoping to encourage you with these words today. Isaiah died according to Jewish tradition by being sawn in half by Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. In Hebrews eleven thirty-seven, it talks about Old Testament saints who were sawn in half. And most people believe that was probably alluding to, to Isaiah's death. Now we're going to take a moment, uh, two minutes and 31 seconds, and I want you to watch the Bible Project's kind of just outline of the first 39 chapters. Actually, we're not going to go through all of that, but just to refresh our memory since we're not going back there. So would you watch these next couple of minutes uh, from the Bible Project, guys? The book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon and the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king and all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with, a new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question, that is, Who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile, in other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile is past. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now remember, chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. First part of that, which was about the first 39 chapters, so we'll, we'll come back to that next week. Just a refresher, chapters 1 through 39 were about the destruction that God was promising Israel and nations around him because of their Uh, of their sin. 
Now we've got to chapter 40, and we'll give you a little bit more context next week. But chapter 40 is, is a change. There's a switch. God's going to be talking about his salvation. And like, like the Bible Project guys are starting to talk about who is speaking in chapters 40 through verse chapter 66. And, and they're going to contend, I'm going to contend that really this is God speaking, speaking to us. Let's back up and just get a little bit of context from chapter 39, if you would. And I'm just going to walk you through this. You'll remember Hezekiah is told that he's going to die, get his, get his house in order. And, and he starts crying. And he starts praying, God, please extend my life. And God extends his life for 15 years. And then at the end of chapter 39, a contingency from Babylon, which is this big empire north of Judah, whom God has said, or God has been saying, he's going to use them to judge Judah and Israel. This this group comes down from Babylon, and Hezekiah shows them everything he has. He walks them through his treasury, tells them in the temple all the gold and all the silver he has in his palace. And and most people believe that he's motivated by pride, by this. He's showing off his stuff, if you would. After they leave, Isaiah comes to him. And here's what Isaiah says to Hezekiah. He says, look, this is chapter 30, number six. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you... Uh, whom you father will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace uh, of the king of Babylon. So, so wow, God tells them, hey, listen, your children, this, this, this group of people you just showed everything to, they're going to come down and they're going to take everything from you, including your children. And, and it's not that God's not doing that because Hezekiah showed them everything. God's going to do that because of the rebellion of his people. I don't know if you remember this, but Hezekiah's response, it just sickens me. Here's what Hezekiah said in response to what Isaiah said. He said, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security during my lifetime. You know, I I guess we can all be like that, but all Hezekiah cared about was himself. That's all he cared about. And he said, well, I don't care. I don't care to take my kids. I don't care if all this is going to happen because it's not going to happen in my lifetime. And I tell you what, Jesus comes along and he changes that for us. Hopefully, hopefully he changes our heart. He puts a new heart in us and hopefully we prefer others as more important than ourselves and we care about others. Isaiah died roughly 700 B.C. All right, so Babylon would come and conquer Israel roughly 600. I'm rounding these numbers up. It was really close. He dies around 700. Babylon comes down in 600 and uh, carries off. It's actually 597, I think, or something like that. Um, but Isaiah writing 100 years before this would actually take place and 170 years before they would return to the land, Isaiah now begins to write this encouraging section of his book, his prophecies to Israel. God wasn't going to just give them up to that discipline and to what was going to happen. He was writing to encourage them and and say to them, God is not finished with you guys. God is going to, in the end, bless you. Now, what he said 170 years prior to, to whom it was actually directed, the exiles in Babylon, you know, the people of, of Isaiah's day, they would have benefited. It would have been an encouragement to them to read what Isaiah wrote 
to the folks coming along 170 years later. And I want to say to all of us that this is, this can be a, I think today's section, chapter 40 is what we're going to look at. I want to just say up front, and I think this is a huge encouragement to all of us. So I really want you to listen. I, I think today is going to be a, a blessing to all of us. So hopefully you followed that. What I'm saying is that now when we get to chapter 40, Isaiah is beginning to look 170 years into the future. He's beginning to look to the time when, when Israel will be released from Babylon and come back home. And so he's writing them this encouragement. It would have been encouraging to the people in, in Isaiah's literal day when they read the prophecies. It could, it would have been encouraging to them. Okay. It's going to be encouraging to the Babylonian exiles 170 years later. As we'll see in just a moment, it would be encouraging some 600 years later when the New Testament folks of Jesus' day would read this because they would recognize it pointing to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. So it would have been encouraging to them. And again, 3,200 years later, I think Isaiah has something to say to you and to me that's going to be extremely encouraging this morning. So hopefully I haven't built this up too much. But the opening verses set the tone for this chapter, and they set the tone for the second half. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open it to Isaiah 40, because what we're going to do today is we're going to walk our way through Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 begins, I'm going to be reading from the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. If you want it, if you have an electronic Bible and you can choose your version, I'm going to be reading from the CSB, but all of you will be able to follow along. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now God's been talking about judgment, but now he begins to say, comfort, comfort my people. And he's looking ahead to the time when 70 years of exile will be over and they will have been lived under foreign rulers for 70 years. Isaiah is now writing to encourage them. And here's the good part. Again, these things are a comfort to us as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply what I'm going to take what Isaiah said to them. Again, remember, he's writing for the exiles. Most everybody believes he's writing for the exiles. 170 years later, he's writing for them, and he's got some things to say to them. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. He's got some things of comfort to say to them. I'm going to take those things, and I'm going to apply them to us. And I'm going to say they should be, can be, are an encouragement uh, to us. So if you're struggling today, if you're in the valley of trials, here's what God has to say to you. Comfort, comfort my people. So this is for you and for me. Here's how he begins. And, and comfort, comfort my people. Here's how Isaiah begins. Find comfort in this truth. God is a forgiving God. And God has forgiven you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. After years of exile, God is now saying to the people, when they read this, he's saying, God has forgiven you. Now, just a couple of thoughts on this. It doesn't mean that there wasn't, forgiveness didn't mean that there wasn't going to be discipline. There was 70 years of discipline, right? 
Forgiveness didn't mean that there wasn't going to be suffering. There had been 70 years of suffering. But the message of comfort that God wants to give them is that in spite your discipline and in spite your suffering, God has forgiven you. Isaiah later would say in chapter 59, he'll say, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Their sin, our sin, relationally affects us. It interrupts our our relationship with God. It, it, It causes there to be a brokenness there. And God's desire... And I say this, I say this with absolute assurance. God's desire is to forgive. God's desire is to restore any kind of broken relationship between us and him caused by our sin. And maybe you're here this morning, you're here this morning and you've sinned against God and you know you've sinned against God. You feel it. You feel the distance between you and the Lord because your sin is before you. I can assure you God desires to forgive you. I can assure you that God desires to restore that relationship with you. And the reason I know that, it's not because Isaiah said it here. I know that because God sent Jesus to die for you so that that relationship could be fixed. He sent Jesus to say, I love you. He sent Jesus to say, if your relationship with me is not what it ought to be, and, and you feel that brokenness? He sent Jesus here to restore that, to repair that. And Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in the Lord Jesus. His desire for our friendship, his desire for our relationship, I mean, as long as there is breath within us, God is desiring to restore that relationship. So whatever you've done this morning, however separated from God, however, however you sinned against what you knew in your heart was not the will of God, I tell you, God's desire is to forgive you and restore you. Now, I'm not at all minimizing our sin. I'm simply talking to you about the heart of God. And here's what what God says through Isaiah to the exiles 170 years after it was being written. Here's what he's saying to the people contemporary to him that day. Here's what he's saying to us 3,200 years later. God's desire is to restore us, to forgive us, to cleanse us of our sin. Now, maybe you're saying, well, how can I be forgiven, Jimmy? How how do I get forgiven? You don't know what I've done. Listen, it's really simple. You simply go to the Lord and say, God, I blew it. You confess your sins. You acknowledge your sin before God, and you repent, and and you turn to him, and you trust him to forgive you. John said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know why, but this week I I just, man, I had a sense that I'd be speaking this morning and you'd be sitting there, someone, and you're just broken over your sin and you feel separated and cut off from God. And God wants to say to you, I don't want you to be cut off from me. I don't want you to be separate. I want you to come to confess your sin and to be restored. So take comfort. You can be forgiven. Here's the second thing Isaiah says. Find comfort in this truth. God is coming for you. And I'm going to say that in a good way. God is coming for you. Not in a bad way. God is coming for you in a good way. So Isaiah begins in in verse 3. And and really, God is coming for you. He's got this in literally three parts, like a three-legged stool. The first part is this. Get ready. 
Get ready because God is coming for you. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys, level the mountaintops, straighten the curves, smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Man, this is an encouraging word to the Babylonian exiles. Hey, guys, get ready. And this is all metaphorical. He doesn't mean really go out and make a literal highway. He's, he's basically saying metaphorically, hey, guys, get ready. Make a straight path for God. I mean, clear your heart. Prepare your heart for the Lord. And, and God is coming. 630 years later, the New Testament writers would read this, and they would say, John the Baptist was that voice crying in the... Now, the Babylonian exiles, I mean, the voice would have been Isaiah's voice crying out, prepare the way. But the, the New Testament writers said, hey, that voice is John the Baptist, and he's out here saying, and you remember, he was saying that, get ready, get ready, make it straight, because the Lord is coming. And, and so they saw that, they saw that it was Jesus, I mean, that it was John the Baptist who was preparing, calling for the preparation of the road. Get ready, God is coming. And they said, Jesus is our King, he's coming. I want to apply those. I want to apply this encouragement to you and me. And here's be comforted people. Get ready. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Get ready for the Lord. Get ready for his return. Make his way straight. And if you wonder what I mean by that, and again, that's metaphorical. When I say make his way straight, I mean, give him your heart. Let your heart be his. Straighten the ways of your heart. If the ways of your heart are crooked, straighten them. Then Isaiah said, here's the second leg of the stool of God is coming. Then Isaiah said, trust God's word. Remember, the first word is get ready, he's coming. The second word is trust God's word. Verse 6, a voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flower in a field. The grass withers, the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Isaiah hears this voice that says, hey, tell the people, shout. What do I shout? Shout that the grass and the flower and people, they wither away. They're here but a season. Wasn't it Jesus that says that we're like the flower of the field or the grass of the, of the field that's here today and gone tomorrow and you don't even know where it was anymore? You can't even see where it used to be? He said, and then he juxtaposes, hey, you're like the flower and the grass. You, 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 God blows on you and you wither away. But the word of the Lord stands forever. What word? The word that God is coming for you. That's what he means. The Lord is coming for you, and the word of God stands forever. Then the third leg of the stool is this. God is coming for us in power to care for us. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintop, shout it louder. O Jerusalem, shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power, and he will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with her young. 
Man, when the people of Babylon read this and they understood it, they would have been encouraged, Jesus, God is coming to care for us. God is coming to take care of us. God is coming to rule over us. What does he say? But God is coming to hold us close to his heart. He's going to care for us like a gentle, like a gentle mom. In Jesus' day, they would have been familiar with this passage, right? They pointed that John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness. And they would have said, hey, Jesus is coming. The king is coming to rule over us and to bless us and to lead us and to hold us close to his heart. And I want to comfort you this morning with the words of Isaiah and say, God is coming for you. And he's coming to hold you and to bless you and to keep you. He is coming for you. God's promise is that he's coming and it stands. The grass may die. The flower may wither away. You may turn to dust, but the word of God will last forever. It stands forever. Whatever you're going through, no matter how difficult it might be right now, Jesus is coming for you. He's coming to carry you in his arms. He's coming to hold you close to his heart. He's coming to gently lead you. He's coming and his reward is with him. What reward? Well, at least his reward would be this, to raise you from the dead and to include you as part of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. That's at least part of his rule, right? I mean, part of his reward. But, but the rest of his reward is that he will hold you close to him. He will hold you in his heart. He will be with you. God is going to always be there with you. Be comforted, beloved. All things turn out for good to those who love God. No matter how much you suffer, God will rescue you. Now, I've said this a gazillion times. So I need to say it again, though. God will rescue you now, or God will rescue you then, but God will rescue you. Here's, here Isaiah continues. Find comfort in this truth. God has no equal. This is, this is the lion's share of this chapter. God has no equal. And what comes next seems to be how God likes to do this with us, right? And that means he, he likes to ask us questions that, you know, the rhetorical answer just puts us in our place. So he begins... Who else has held the oceans in his hands? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingertips or with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Those first questions are asking you, who but the creator has done all of that? And this all this is metaphorical, right? I mean, God, I don't think he took the hills and said, okay, that's, that's a good weight, you know, and it didn't work that way. According to the scriptures, Jesus spoke everything into existence that is. The questions continue, though. They're, he's basically saying, you know, where are you? Where were you when I created the world? Same kind of questions he asked Job. The questions continue, verse 13. Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows even to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? Here was, here's what God points us to and them to and us to is his wisdom. And there is no one like God. No one wise like God. No one can advise the Lord. And when it comes to advising God on what's good, God says, no one needs to teach me what's good and right or just. Why is that? Because our bearings of what is good, right, and just, they come from the Lord. How do you know what is just? Because he has shown you, O oh man, what is just. 
How do you know what is good? Because we measure goodness against the Lord. He continues on. Now, if you think the nations of this world have something on God, here's what God says about that. Verse 15, no, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grand of sand. And the wood of Lebanon's forest and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. You might think the nations of this world are great. The nations of this world, God established all authority that is. And I don't mean that God is putting, I don't mean that God is micromanaging, this is my opinion, that God is micromanaging the world to create evil empires or nations. That's not what I'm saying. I, I, that's not what I believe God is saying. But all authority comes from God. God created authority. But the nations that he has created, they are, you know, by allowing authority to be. I mean, they're nothing. They're but dust. They've vanished with time. They are no more. Where's the Roman Empire? Where's the Persian Empire? Where's the Ottoman Empire? Where are all the great empires of the past? They're all gone. They're all nothing. They're like froth on the ocean that's here one moment and then you turn around and it's glass and it's gone. And you know, in, in America, our America's great. She's been a bastion of freedom. But listen, if the return of Jesus tarries for thousands of years more, then America will be just like all the rest of those nations. The nations are nothing, God says. They count for nothing. And what's the point? What's the point? Remember, the point here, the point here is that God has no equal. And the nations of this world, they, they don't, they cannot and do not compete with God. And I love this. I want to mention this before I move on. All the animals of the forest of Lebanon and all the trees of Lebanon. You make an altar out of all the trees and you put all the animals on there. Going back to the sacrificial system. They would not be a burnt offering, offering worthy of our God. All the th there's, you have nothing, nothing you have to give God is worthy of God except this, except your love. Accept your life. That's all you've got to offer. All these other things are for naught. The questions continue. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and the skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem to be grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain, makes, it, makes his tent from them. In other words, he hides his heaven from us with the, with the universe. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. The great men and great women of this world, they come to, they hardly get started, barely take root, and then he blows on them and they wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? Brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Who is like the Lord? No one. 
No one is like the Lord. Can you compare him to a, a molded idol or a carved idol? Of, of course not. Why would people ever do that? He said, are you so ignorant? Are you so ill-informed? God sits above the heavens, above the earth. He says that we're like grasshoppers or insects to God. And I'm telling you, I mean, you know, Isaiah's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I'm telling you what, that analogy falls way short because there's so much more of a difference between you and a grasshopper. I mean, between you and God than between you and a grasshopper, right? Even the great people of this world, right? They're, they're here for a moment. They barely begin to exist to take root and they wither away. To whom can we compare the Lord? To whom can we compare our God? To no one. No one is God's equal. Be comforted by this. The God you follow and the God you serve and the God you love. No one is like him. No one is bigger than him. No one is better than him. No one is truer than him. No one is more loving than him. No one is more kind or gracious than him. No one is like him. He's indescribable. Chris Tomlin wrote that song we sang. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creation revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings. All exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You think maybe Isaiah 40 inspired Chris Tomlin? I think it did. I think it did. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God, all-powerful, untamable, awestruck. We fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing. Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? Who imagined the sun and gives source to its light? Who created the sun and made the sun be the, the object of light in our universe or in our, in our galaxy? Who did that? God did that. And yet he conceals it to bring the coolness of night. None can fathom. That's what God said. That's what God said. None can fathom. Who is my equal? God has no equal. He is God. The God we serve is a great God. So run to him. Run to him. Be comforted. Trust in him. Hang in there. I'm almost done. Find comfort in this truth, Isaiah says. God knows. God knows. Evidently, the people were saying, God doesn't know about us in Babylon. God doesn't know about us over here. He's, he's forgot about us. Verse 27, Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Have you not understood that God is eternal? Have you not understood that God is everlasting? Have you not understood that God is the creator of everything? And so therefore he knows everything. You can't measure what God knows because God knows everything. Psalm 139, David says, God knows your thoughts before you have them. So that means somehow or another in my inner being, God is aware of my inner being. 
And he's following my inner being. And he knows my thoughts before I mention them. But my favorite is what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. That's a scary thought. It's a comforting thought. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you heard in a whisper in your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the, both soul and body in Gehenna. And are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than the sparrows. Be comforted, every one of you. Be comforted. Listen to me. Be comforted. God knows. He knows your suffering. He knows the injustice maybe that you've experienced. He, he knows your fears. He knows what you're facing. And remember, remember, remember the second comfort that Isaiah gave them? He's coming for you. He knows and he's coming for you. He's coming. He's going to be there to rescue you. He'll either rescue you now or he'll rescue you then. But he knows and he will rescue you. I'll tell you this, this point right here, and I just kept going over and over again this week. He knows. He knows. You know, when you're, when you're suffering, and, 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 and our suffering mostly lies in the, in, the, in the physical realm with our body health, right? That's most of where our suffering. But sometimes relationally we can suffer. But, man, there are so many of our brothers and sisters around the world that they are suffering. And it's physical suffering, but it's more than that. It's the suffering of ostracism to be ostracized. It's the suffering of losing everything, you know. It's the suffering of being incarcerated for your faith. And you know, I'm sure when they're in dark cells and they're all alone because of their faith in Jesus, I wonder if they're thinking, God, do you know? God, do you see me? God, have you forgotten me? Remember, John the Baptist had that same problem. He's in prison for a while, and, and, he, and he begins to wonder, is Jesus the one? I mean, his own cousin, the one he's been there in the highway preparing the way for, he sends messages and says, are you really the one? Why? Because it, it's kind of dark being in prison. Here's my point. God knows. And some of you are suffering, and, and some of us know your sufferings, but some of your suffering, we don't know your suffering. But here's what I want to say. God knows your suffering. God knows. God knows. Be comforted, beloved. Be comforted. God knows. And finally, find comfort in this truth. God graces us. I chose the word grace because at, at, the, at the core of the word grace is the idea of charis or the idea of gifting. And here's my point. Find comfort in this. God gifts you. God gifts you. And here's how He gifts you. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Now here's the grace that God gives you. He gives you the power 
now. He gives you the power now, the strength now. And, and I know, I know that I'm, I'm, seem like, it seems like, and I've said this to you before, but it seems like I'm constantly pointing us to the day of redemption, to the day when Jesus comes and his kingdom is established on earth. And, 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 and that is also true. And I'll continue to point you there. But here Isaiah is not pointing to that. He's pointing to this now, life now. And he's saying, in this life, young people, they wear out. I mean, they, I mean, young people have so much energy, right? And, and, you know, and I'm finding you don't have much energy as you get older. And, but young people, they got lots of energy. But even energetic young people, they get tired. And even energetic young people, they get weary and they get exhausted. But he says, not so with you. Those of you who trust in me, you will not grow weary. You, you will not, you will walk and not faint. You will run and not grow weary. You're going to soar like on eagle's wings. Now, all of this is metaphorical, okay? All this is a metaphor. And here's the, here's the point of the metaphor. Young people grow tired in their physical strength. But he's saying to those of us who trust in the Lord, your strength, your power, your, your, I will sustain you. I will grace you with what you need as you walk through life. And you will not grow weary if you trust in me. You will not grow tired. You will run. You will walk. You will not faint if you trust in me. You're going to soar up on wings like eagles because I'm going to carry you. And here is my thought. Some of you need to hear this today, now. You need to hear it right now. God is going to carry you. God is going to strengthen you. You're going to rise up on wings with eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. You will walk and you will not faint because he will carry you if you keep trusting in him. And some of you need to hear it right now. You need to hear it right now. Nancy, you need to hear that right now. Donna, you need to hear that right now. And here, here's something else I want to say to you. Some of us maybe don't need to hear that right now because we're doing okay in our own strength. We're doing okay with, you know, we're just doing okay in our own strength. But I, I, I kind of think, I might be wrong, but I kind of think every one of us needs to hear this at some point in our life. Every one of us is going to need to hear this at some point in our life. Keep trusting in Him and He will, Eric, he will lift you up. He will carry you. That's, that's the comfort. He'll give you what you need. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not, do not tremble and be not dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.